I'm Aaron Berg. I'm many things. A son, a husband, an immigrant, a dad. I'm also a Jew. And I fought every stereotype there is about us. I was a bodybuilder, a male stripper. I worked in the sex trade. I became a stand-up comedian. And I realized that to be Jewish is to be badass. Join me and celebrate all the badass Jews out there. And let me tell you, there are a ton. Business moguls, game changers, assassins. They come from every walk of life. This is Badass Jews. And I'm your host, Aaron Berg. Today on Badass Jews, my guest is a filmmaker, but not just a filmmaker. He is a filmmaker in a class all by himself, one of the foremost documentarians of our lifetime. He's directed and produced a number of films and series that have won both awards and critical acclaim. It is my honor to welcome Mark Levin to Badass Jews. Mark, how are you today? Good, Aaron. Good to be on the uh, Badass Jew Network. Now, you just imparted this knowledge to me that you became a godfather. A godfather. See what I did there? I messed it up. A grandfather. First time. Now, a man of your age, 32, clearly <laughs> uh, started having kids at a young age, grew up in the hood. I'm kidding. Mazel tov is obviously in order. Um, boy, girl, two. Boy and a girl. Boy and a girl, the magic combo. Twins, very yep. rare in the Jewish world. Yes, it's true. Although my wife, uh, a good Jewish woman from Long Island, had twins, Sarah and Daniel. And my daughter, who did marry out of the faith, uh, a Italian professor at uh, Bard College, Franco Baldasso, uh, they have had Fiametta and Davide. Oh, they, by the way, a great espresso machine, the Fiametta. I've had it several times when I've been down on Canal Street. It's lovely. It makes a very heavy espresso. The Dopio is fantastic. Uh, <laughs> it's a joke. Do you see what I did there? I took an Italian word and twisted it. Yeah. Uh, you're a New York Jew, born yes. in New York. Born in Manhattan. That's right. Um, bar Mitzvah. I was Bar Mitzvah in Manhattan by... Um, uh, a very famous uh, Jewish leader uh, named Mordecai Kaplan, who started the Reconstruction Movement in Judaism. Um, my grandfather uh, was a leader in that movement and the president of the East Midwood uh, Jewish Synagogue. Uh, so there are some Jewish roots, although my parents <laughs> pretty much, uh, you know, ignored religious uh, celebrations explain the difference of reconstructionism versus reform and conservative and how did that affect your life um that's a good question i don't know how it affected my life except that my grandfather's influence uh really somehow that's where my interest in my own jewish roots in the history of judaism all of that i think comes from my grandfather uh, and uh, his emphasis and his leading our family in, in both Hanukkah and Passover. Uh, my understanding of Reconstructionism is that it was an attempt to not just do away with Hebrew and some of the traditional rituals, uh, but to keep them, but to somehow make them relevant to the modern world. So, I mean, they had women, some of the first women rabbis, 
so it was a modernizing, but it didn't want to let go of Hebrew and traditional prayers. It wanted to just put them in a different context that was much more contemporary. And I think that although you may not realize it initially, you're a very outside of the box type Jew. When I look at your body of work and I look at how you've developed and grown, I think that there may have been some influence in being raised as a reconstructionist versus, you know, I was raised reform, rife with guilt and and rife with all these other things that went with this traditional Judaism, but you had this outside of the box type approach to it, and not by choice, obviously. It, it was passed to you by your family. My grandfather, especially, uh, and my grandmother, my father's mother and father, my parents were political activists. They were not uh, interested in going to temple. I mean, I went to Hebrew school, was bar mitzvahed really because of my grandparents. Uh, my parents uh, were radicals. They were involved in the labor movement. They were involved in the civil rights movement. And I grew up in Elizabeth, New Jersey. I was born in Manhattan, but I grew up in a working class Italian-American neighborhood. It's right. funny what you say, because one of the first memories I have of even thinking of myself as a Jew was when one of my good friends uh, on the block, where there were no Jews, it was all working class Italian Americans, uh, one day said to me, Mark, you're not a real Jew. And I was like, what do you mean? He goes, well, you have blue eyes and you're friends with us. And, you know, you're not like, you know, he meant the stereotypical uh, and I didn't, you know, I might have been eight or nine years old, but I, I, I didn't know quite what to make of that. Was that a compliment or was that an insult? Uh, but that comment stayed with me. And how did you take it initially? Because there is that want to be like, oh, okay, I'm accepted. But there's also this driving desire inside you that is like, I'm different than these people. Did you take it as a compliment or did you take it as uh, an insult, which could later be deemed as a, a form of anti-Semitism if you looked at it now? Absolutely. No, I took it as a, a pass, like an entree, you know, like they're letting me into the club. And it's interesting that I mean, the Italian-Jewish connection is one that, you know, just like the Black-Jewish connection, those are two worlds I've been fascinated by. You mentioned Godfather earlier. You know, the whole history of organized crime in the 20th century is the Italians and the Jews. Yeah. Uh, and when you want to talk about badass Jews, and, and you know, I met a number of them, uh, you know, Murder, Inc. was a Jewish, you know, that whole thing, the Lansky uh Longies Wilman was from New Jersey, uh, you know, so that world, I, I kind of came in contact through my work. Uh, and then the black Jewish connection, you know, which, which is such a key thing also. So uh, I took it as a pass that I was allowed in, that I could hang with my friends and be accepted. I had a similar thing when I was about 15 and I started kind of hanging with a, a lot of badass guys and we got into a lot of trouble, but I was the only Jew out of that group. And there was that acceptance and it kind of made you feel like, oh, I don't need to hang out with my Jewish friends that are all doing great things. I can go and see this other part of the world that to me was this unforeseen underbelly and was very exciting to me. Did you feel that there was more excitement hanging out 
with these, you know, working class Italian guys than being like, oh, I'm going to go after uh, Hebrew school and just go play dreidel in a parking lot somewhere. <laughs> yeah, it, it's funny because in Elizabeth, the Jewish neighborhood, which I didn't know about until I went, my parents forced me to go to Hebrew school, uh, was actually the wealthy neighborhood. Uh, and so I used to bike there, but I, you know, these beautiful houses, beautiful lawns, whereas you're right. I hung with my friends, you know, on Orchard Street in Elizabeth, and we were little rascals. We were little delinquents, you know, yeah. and that was much more exciting to me, definitely. So growing up, w when your father would see this type of stuff, w was it problematic from your parents' angle, or were they accepting of it because they were basically activists at the time where they thought you needed to see more of the world than this insulated religious perspective? Oh, yeah. No, they were, look, the FBI came to my house. I mean, looking for my parents, uh, you know, my parents were, were cool. They were uh, way ahead of their time. They took me when I was 10 to the March on Washington with my sisters, you know, when Martin Luther King spoke. Uh, no, they, they and, and my father were at that time, you know, before they kind of abandoned the working class revolution, uh, my father worked on the uh, Jersey Central Railroad and my mother worked in a Westinghouse factory. So they literally were, you know, in with the working class uh, and uh, they encouraged us to, you know, be part of our neighborhood. And uh, I think some of that definitely had a profound influence on me. And then how does your dad move from that into what he went to next? Both my parents became professionals and they got us out of Elizabeth. I think they were worried I was gonna become a little juvenile delinquent and we moved to Maplewood, South Orange, you know, suburbia. Uh, my father left, I, th I think he and my mother became disillusioned uh, with, you know, kind of the radical working class struggle in terms of the way they had imagined it when they were younger. My father became a journalist a filmmaker. My mother became a, a clinical psychologist. Uh, and um, so I, I think it was a natural evolution. You know, they grew up as their kids grew up. I worked with my dad. I mean, my old man was, uh, was an original. Uh, all, everybody, you know, who knew Al Levin, you know, he was a one of a kind. Uh, he was, uh, you know, more youthful than most of my friends. Uh, he was, uh, uh, you know, I have on my website, one of his like, you know, underground films, which was called the way the Eagle shits, yeah. uh, his thesis on how we need poor people that we can't, you know, that our system can't work without poor people. So they encouraged me. Uh, and, but I think on the, on the badass side, cause, cause uh, my mom was more of a badass than my dad was. My dad opened his arms to everyone. My mom, you know, was a killer. You know, she sensed, you know, when there was somebody that she didn't trust. Uh, and I think that the, just the street culture, uh, like you were talking about when you grew up, because my sister and I, my sister a year younger than me versus my two youngest sisters who grew up in Maplewood, we ended up in New York City. We ended up on the street. My sister ended up in city government and housing, but working on the street with people in New York. 
I ended up on the street. I think that Elizabeth, New Jersey, you know, you wouldn't call it urban, but it was street culture, you know, capture the flag on the street, always hanging out on the stoop. Somehow that influenced me, whereas my two youngest sisters live in suburbia, you know, and and have a different relationship uh, with, I guess you would call working class and ethnic communities than I do. So your mom is more the badass of the two, but your father instills something in you that makes you carry on his life's work. How does that begin? Well, I think, it, you know, in Protocols of Zion, which is the film I did uh, on the rise of anti-Semitism after uh, 9-11, and that's in the beginning when we were just bullshitting, uh, I said, you know, I've gotten it from all sides. What was surprising when I made that film is the, uh, those in the Jewish community who came after me, you know, basically saying, why do you even bring this up? Why do you even talk about this anti-Semitic tract that's been around for a hundred years? You know, we don't want people to know it. You're just, you know, legitimating it, even if you think you're criticizing it. So I was kind of shocked by the uh, the conservative Jews that came after me. Uh, obviously, you had the other side, and and in that you know film, I you know when I look at it today, I think <laughs> I don't think badass as much as lunatic. You know that I went to the National Alliance headquarters uh, with Sean Walker, the head of the neo-Nazi party. That I was in the middle of uh, the Palestinian neighborhood in Brooklyn uh, after uh, Sheikh Yassin was assassinated by Israeli intelligence, and they were you know carrying on and. Uh, so I, th but I think that urge, you know, at the end of that film, I stand with my father at my grandfather's gravesite in Brooklyn. And my grandfather had this funny saying, you know, which is when we were kids, what does God mean? He'd say, you know, what does God mean? And he's, and, and uh, I'd say, I, I don't know, what, what does God mean? And he says, well, take the word God, take the first two letters, G-O, go. Take the second two letters, D-O, and go, do, and then add an O in there, good. Go, do, good. God means go, do, good. Uh, you asked me, you know, from my father, the legacy. That it, my father was a hopeaholic. My father was uh, someone that believed in storytelling, in journalism, and that everyone had the potential to improve themselves and to contribute. Uh, and I think that part of his spirit lives in me, just as my mother, who was a fighter uh, against all authority uh, and was a fighter against anyone that threatened her family, uh, I think that lives in me also. And that's where the badass comes. Do you, and we'll get more into this, obviously, the, the situations you put yourself into, do you feel fear? at any time when you're immersing yourself into one of your films, whether it be gangbangers, whether it be Nazis, is there a sense of fear that washes over you or are you genuinely inquisitive? I am inquisitive, but there's fear. Uh, I mean, when I look at protocols now, I think I was out of my mind. I mean, I think that was a post-traumatic, you know, uh, reaction after 9-11 of just wanting to understand what the hell is going on and why are all these people saying no Jews died in the World Trade Center? That's absolutely insanity. Uh, 
at the same time, uh, you know, like you mentioned, uh, you know, gang war banging in Little Rock. Uh, yeah, I was uh, apprehensive about going down into the middle of this uh, Little Rock, Arkansas, which at that time had a higher murder per capita than New York City. And it was all because of this gang violence from L.A. and Chicago, Bloods and Crips, Gangsters Disciples, Latin Kings. Um, and... Uh, yeah, there were, I mean, we got caught in a drive-by. <laughs> that scared yeah. the shit out of me. Uh, I mean, I remember sitting, uh, you know, we were at uh, a crip house that we had been documenting, and we were there with the... The, the, the coroner. The at coroner, Denver, Steve, yeah. the, the Wojciech. So we thought, in the middle of the day. So it's like, hey, we're here with an official. You can't get safer. We brought some pizza. We're all hanging out. And I just remember that red car you know, pulling up beside, because I was in the driver's seat, Daphne and I were about to leave, and a hand reaching out with an automatic weapon and just firing. And I just dove <laughs> under the steering wheel and, you know, just yelled at Daphne, are you rolling? Are you rolling? Are you yeah. rolling? Uh, yeah, I was scared. I, I was shaking uh, the whole time after that. Thank God nobody was seriously injured. But I'll never forget that uh, this 11-year-old kid came up to me uh, and said, after that, he said, you know, are you ever going to make a real movie? Yeah. And I kind of looked at him like, wait a second, what, what are you talking about? This is about as real as it gets, man. Uh, you know, you guys just survived this drive-by some, by some bloods. And he goes, no, no, you know, I mean, with popcorn and in a movie theater <laughs> and, you know, actors, you know, like a real movie. Yeah. And that conversation stayed with me and I think partially inspired me to do slam, you know, some, you know, uh, I don't know, eight or nine years later. Right. And, and that progression slam is a huge moment in your career. Obviously, if people haven't seen it, it's a story of a young African-American man whose talent for poetry is basically hampered by his social background, won the grand jury prize, uh, at Sundance in 1998 uh, how did it come together, and how did that film boost your career? Well, that film, you know, was like a wave that I rode for a good 10 years. I mean, it was a, for me, it was a breakthrough. First, I was, you know, a documentary filmmaker. So here I had done, uh, you know, a film that was uh, won the dramatic award at Sundance and the, and the camera door at Cannes. Uh, it changed my life totally. It uh, opened up doors uh, to the, the scripted world, uh, to working with a lot of different talent. Uh, did two other features after that, did a TV series, Street Time after that, did Brooklyn Babylon, which was a meditation. I mean, it's funny, you you know, I think I went to Howard or, or one, one of the black universities or colleges to show Slam. And I remember coming out after the film showed. And then all of a sudden there was like, huh? like, that's Mark Levin, this middle-aged white guy from New York. I mean, I think that everyone thought I was like a young black director and this was at a black college. So everybody was stunned. Uh, and uh, I think the next two films, feature films I did in a way were trying to explain that question of how did you end up making this film? Sure, because uh, you're delving into uh, territory that would otherwise be taken over by like somebody like a Singleton or somebody at the time, right? These right. people that had really encapsulated uh, the, the world of uh, African-American people at that time. And it had moved beyond black exploitation films and, and become its own genre. And here 
comes this middle-class Jew. And by the way, out of all the people that are involved in this call right now, you would be the least likely one that we would choose to be involved in a drive-by. If you've seen the rest of the guys on the call, you look at Mike, it looks like he just came from one in Washington Heights. But you don't look it. So you you break out of this mold. You, you go in, there's almost this thing where you immerse yourself into a totally different culture and then take it on and peel off every layer of it masterfully masterfully oh, i i appreciate that i think i think two things one i you know when people ask okay so how did you end up doing this i think the two films i did after that white boys and brooklyn babylon were attempts uh, as godfathers and sons also to understand the relationship especially the relationship between blacks and jews um, you know, which is 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 the the core of of the love story in Brooklyn Babylon, and uh, certainly part of the chess record story in the Chicago Blues in terms of the chess family and Muddy Waters and Howling Wolf and Etta James and 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 that and what came out of that. Uh, and white boys was you know what's a white what what's a white boy doing in the middle of the hood, uh, and that was that was me. Um, and you know it's. I, I, it was never premeditated. That's all I can say is it just kind of happened. I mean, in many ways, gang war was the beginning. And I have to admit, I was resistant when Sheila Nevins, who was the head of HBO documentaries at that time, said, you know, why don't you and Daphne Pinkerson, the producer, you know, go down to Little Rock. Clinton had just been elected. Daphne had seen this article in the Times that it, it, it had the highest murder rate per capita because of the explosion in gangs and the crack. And um, I was resistant. I was like, you know, colors had already been made with Sean Penn. I was like, what new is there to say about gangs? Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, what what am I going to do? And I remember Shil looking at me and saying, you'll come up with something. I'm sure of it. Um and that was the initiation, that drive-by gang culture and me see, starting to see it. I guess Bones Malone also, uh, my relationship with Bones. But starting to see it differently, starting to see hip-hop differently, rap differently. Um, that really began to change me and starting to realize how many young people, not just black, brown, uh, and white, uh, and not just guys, girls too, were lost and had no families and had no community and and you know and 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 seeing that that was an eye opener for me the scene in banging in little rock where they jump the girl in is one of those moments that's it like i i was jumped in to to gang i was a 15 year old kid and i remember it but to, to watch a girl jumped in is one of those things that just sticks on the brain and to be able to capture it like that it's ballsy to put those moments on camera. Do you think that you would still be able to do that now without having the, these labels thrown at it? Where like, it's misogynist that a woman would want to be involved in this type of world. Do you think that that would happen now? That type of documentary, could it be made now? That's a good question. Um, you know, it's a very good question. I don't know. In fact, I had a conversation just yesterday on a project about a, a, a rapper getting out of prison uh, who had converted to uh, Islam and 
wants me to do a documentary. And I brought up to, you know, him and, and his team, I was like, you know, are you, you know, in the world we're living in, obviously I support Black Lives Matter and the, the whole movement for racial and economic equality. But um, I know the sensitivities now that you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I said to them, I said, look, you know, they're like, you know, do you want to do it? And, uh, and, and I said, look, first of all, you guys just need to understand that somebody's going to call you up and said, what the hell are you doing? You know, you didn't hire a black director. You didn't hire a Muslim director. You hire, you hired this older white Jew. What is wrong with you? I yeah. said, if you guys are willing to take that on, uh, I said, then let's sit down and talk. So I think, you know, there's no doubt you're making a point. I think it's important, obviously, diversity and, 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 and racial equality. But at, it's always the risk if we ever get to that point where it's like, oh, you know, we're Jews, so only we can tell a Jewish story or, right. or, 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 or we're a men and we can't tell a woman's story or a black uh, director can't tell a white story. I mean, we never want to get to that point because the whole point of art is that there's finding some universality. I agree, 100%. Um, so what... But that was painful to see her beat up. Yeah. I have to tell you, th- you know, being there watching that, I, I had to turn away. I mean, yeah. That- that was just painful to watch. Yeah. You know? um, I mean, it's it's one of the keystones of your work is these great uncomfortable moments. So going on to Slam, what what allowed you to take the creative risk that was necessary to make Slam? Well, I was making a documentary that went on to win the Emmy for HBO, Thug Life in DC, about how all the young blacks in the nation's capital were being locked up. Yeah. Uh, and while there, I got to know the warden and uh, I got to know, um, you know, some people that worked in the system. So when I teamed up with Henri uh, and Richard Stratton, the two producers, and we were trying to come up with an idea of a film we could make, I said, maybe I can, you know, see if we could get some access. And I had seen Saul Williams at the Poets Cafe in New York City, the New Yorkian Cafe, and I was blown away by him. You know, I'd never seen a slam poet quite like Saul Williams. Uh, you know, it had this regal, princely look, and it was almost Shakespearean, and yet he was like from a brother from another planet. It was just mind-blowing. So uh, the simple idea of a, of a guy like that who, you know, plays a character, gets busted on a small drug deal and thrown into the D.C. system, could we get into the D.C. jail? So what happened? It, it's just amazing. The woman who ran, who was the head of the Department of Corrections, the day I came into her office, the Congress had a hearing that Newt Gingrich wanted to defund Washington, D.C. completely because they had reelected Marion Barry, who had been busted for crack. Right. So these Republicans were like, this is outrageous, and we're going to punish Washington. And this woman, who was known as Iron Panties, you know, so I went in there like, you know, like, well, how am I going to commit? She just shut me up. She said, you see that? These people don't know anything. They've got to learn a lesson. How many days do you need? I said, give me seven days. She, you know, she said, I'll give you seven days. You know, in two weeks, you get down here, seven days in the D.C. jail. You can shoot. No insurance, no, you know, clear. It, it was just a, a 
moment where she was so disgusted by the Republicans turning on the nation's capital and the local government and defunding them and defunding her Department of Corrections, that she basically just, it was a catharsis. Uh, and she you know, happened to be there at that just the right moment. And we got permission. And of course, that unlocked everything to be able to shoot in a real jail. And of course, the climax of that film, when you talk about you know brass balls, I mean, that was real because uh, we did some mistake or we stayed too long or something and she got pissed off and it was, you know, and this was the climactic scene, Saul in the yard, you know, where these two gangs are going to get it on and he's caught in the middle. And um, at first she called the whole thing off. You know, I'm very disappointed in you. I had to go in there like the vice principal, get down on my hands and knees and just just let us do it. And she goes, okay, you know, you got an hour. And this was the climax of the whole film. So Saul so pretty much did that live, and meaning, yeah, yeah, we had shot some inserts earlier, but he went out there and did that Amethyst Rock performance. And there were people in that yard because that was part of what the problem was, that we were at the end of our seven days and there were detainees who weren't happy. Uh, you know, we worked with some of the detainees and some of the staff, but there were people that were like, it's time to get these guys out of here. Yeah. So that was, uh, that was the real thing. Uh, and that, and that poem so stunned everybody that it, as it does in the movie, that it actually diffused the situation we were in and allowed us to operate that final day or two. There's this thing to your life that it, it is art. Like, are you aware of that? The through line of your life is basically this artistic tapestry. Do you feel that when you're living because of the choices that you make, that that you, you've encompassed this whole being as an artist? Everything that you do and touch becomes art and is reflective of your life in those moments. And these magical moments happen. Why is that? Well, it's funny you say the magical moments because that's true. And I've been uh, very lucky. Uh, I mean, uh, <laughs> that's karma. Uh, or in the Jewish faith, uh, it is the raising of the sparks. Uh, I mean, I am. Uh, I lived in Jerusalem, uh, actually, uh, ages ago for a little while and was fascinated by uh, Jewish mysticism. Uh, and... Um, I think somehow, you know, I, I, I like to feel that that's, there is some karma involved uh, because there have been, I remember when we did Slam and, and you know, I remember somebody saying, you know, it's once in a lifetime and it was, but that you can't, don't expect to capture any more magic moments. You know, that only happens once. And, you know, we just did, uh, I promise, with the LeBron James School in Akron, where there were so many magic moments, we just did uh, uh, Stockton on my mind. So, I don't know, you know, it's funny you say art. I think that growing up in Elizabeth gave me more of a, I guess you would call it the working class attitude that I never saw myself as an artist, you know, saw myself as, as a filmmaker, as a craftsperson, as a storyteller, but the word art itself, I, I wasn't comfortable with. Uh, I, I guess I thought it had a pretension or it was for elites only and not for, you know, the people. Um, 
and I guess that changed somewhat with my wife, who is out of the art world in the museum world and uh, has studied art and restored art all her life. My daughter does the same now. Uh, and I, and also there was a government program that 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 was established. I don't know if you remember the CETA Arts Program uh, back in the late 70s. It was a, like a mini WPA where artists were actually hired by the federal government and you had to work with a community group, but then you could do your own art. And I was hired and put in charge of the media group. Uh, so I was working with 500 artists in New York City uh, and that was the first time I began thinking about myself in any way as an artist. Um, and it was the poets, which comes back to slam, that I was, of all the artists, that I was most comfortable with. Somehow, they were the ones that seemed to speak the same language as I and the, and the characters that I met were most connected to the same world I was. So, Jerusalem, how long were you there for? I lived in Jerusalem uh, from uh, after the Yom Kippur War for about uh, almost a year in Rojavia. Is there a, a, a big change when <laughs> you land in Israel? Is there this uh, shift in the way that you look at everything else in the world because you're on the land that is promised. Do you feel a shift in your being? I felt a shift in, I think, the classic American Jewish experience, which you had referred to before, um, at Hebrew school and, and, you know, in a nice suburb like Elmora, Elizabeth. Here, the bus drivers were Jews. The cops were Jews. You know, th that's what everybody was a Jew. You know, the 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 coffee stand outside. You know, uh, on the street corner. So the working class, the 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 universality of the experience, and uh, just forgetting whatever religion you are, this idea that monotheism. You know that, that that this rock in Jerusalem. You know that the Dome of the Rock is on, and the Wailing Wall is on. Uh, and the, the the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, you know, that these three faiths, I, I, I guess, you know, I would say I had somewhat of an epiphany sitting there that, that here somehow this rock brought out this transcendent insight in humanity, that there's more, and there is this kind of one unifying divinity. And then moments after that insight, somebody else said, yeah, and it's ours. Yeah. <laughs> and that, you know, and, and, and that contradiction, you know, in, in the highest in the human spirit, and no, it's ours, and all the wars and, and fights that have been fought and, and obviously continue to be fought, it was just so striking and powerful. So, you know, they call it Jerusalem syndrome, and, you know, but there is something about living in that city, as I did for almost a year, uh, that was magical. And it wasn't just Jewish. It was, you know, at that point when I was there in 74, you could go to the, the you know, to the West Bank, you could have a dinner in the best, you know, Arab uh, Palestinian restaurants. It was, I mean, obviously there had just been a war, the Yom Kippur War, but it was nothing like it is now. And, and I did go back with protocols, I guess, uh, you know, uh, uh, 16, 17 years ago. And I was just stunned by 
the change, you know, uh, in Jerusalem, especially, you know, the expansion and just the whole change in, in Israel, period. There's something very similar. You talk about the universality of art and uh, Richard Pryor went to Africa and he had this great line in one of his specials where he said there was no N-words because we were all the same. And he said that about Africa. Uh, it's amazing to see a Jew go through the same thing in their homeland where it's like everybody's the same. It's all, Everybody is Jewish. And he's, Pryor said in Africa, everybody's black. The person driving you is black. And uh, a really interesting thing to see the similarity. So this leads me to my next question. Did you find something in hip hop that you found profound at an early point in the culture? Because yeah, hip hop yes. was newer when when you were making films at that time, it, it wasn't what it is now. And, and it wasn't just this uh, exploitive thing um, that, that people can just write off, you know? And um, there wasn't this godlike syndrome to hip hop artists. What was it, what was it for you then? Well, for, I, I'll be honest with you. First of all, you know, I, I had been into jazz, you know, and still love jazz. Uh, and, you know, still saw it as, as kind of the apogee of the creative art, meaning that, you know, you, 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 you workshop, you study, you practice for years, but it's all about then improvising in the moment. That combination, Charlie Parker, you know, Charlie Christian, I mean, that, that became my model for what art was, you know, the best of art. Um, so and when hip hop first came out, when the message came out and, you know, I, I kind of dismissed it like disco. I, I, I did think, but then meeting Bones Malone in, in 86, uh, you know, who was this young kid that was writing for the New Youth Connection uh, and who had been a graffiti artist. He's the one that started kind of educating me that this, this idea of appropriation, you know, in other words, that we live in this consumer society that's bombarding us with advertisements and messages and billboards. Hey, and why can't my name be on a train? And why can't my name, you know, why does it have to just be Coca-Cola or Pepsi-Cola? So that, then, you know, that was, that was new, that it wasn't just defacing the train. You know, it was uh, some kind of statement of saying, hey, we're here too, and we want our moment. And then in the music world where, again, where I first thought, well, you can't learn to play an instrument like these great jazz musicians, you know, who, who spent their lives perfecting, you know, their craft. But then, you know, Chuck D and others began to open my head to, well, we're not even taught music anymore in school. You know, they got rid of that. And we're going to use the technology and the media scope. That's our instrument. You know, that that's what we're playing. Uh, so the mashup concept, and then, and then the reverence for and the power of words, you know, going back to poetry, spoken word, you know, I think those were things that, that I kind of dismissed at first when it was just party music uh, and became much more aware of and somehow much more comfortable in that world uh, than I was in other, you know, kind of musical worlds. So it shows in the choices you start to make creatively. Uh, Danny, Danny Hawk, am I saying it right? Because yeah, I was right. a huge fan. Yep. Uh, when I started, I started doing stand-up. I was more impressed by spoken word and one-man show stuff. And he was 
uh, right on that level with like an Eric Bogosian for me. Right. And Danny had taken this voice of the street. And as a white boy, and I watch white boys. I can't find it anywhere, by the way. I've tried to order it on websites. I think I got it sent to me on VHS tape from Danny's website years ago. It is almost impossible to find. So if you can, I want I'll to link send, that I'll movie. send you a link. Please. I'll send, I'll send you a link. Um, to show the, the white immersion into that type of black culture and then how you single-handedly were able to go into it. What does that feel like? And how do you come to work with somebody like Danny? How, how do you spot Danny and go, this is a movie I want to make? Well, like you, I, I saw Danny, you know, in that time period uh, in 98, 99, uh, and I was blown away by his performance. You, you mentioned Eric Bogosian. You know, I, I was amazed. It was hysterical. Uh, he, he had gotten the voices down, the way he put it all together. So after Slam, um, you know, there were a lot of opportunities, and somehow that script landed on my desk. And I just remember reading it one night, and I was howling. I was just, I, and I said to Rich Stratton, I said, we, we got to make this movie. You know, this guy is brilliant. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it, it's, it, it, you know, the fact that that movie didn't succeed, that was obviously also a major disappointment. Uh, what you just said, at one point, I, I know I went on a Rotten Tomatoes and it had a zero. Uh, uh, it, was, it was like uh, the worst film ever made. But no, I'm proud of that film. I think Danny's great in it. Dash Myhock is great in it. Mark Webber, uh, Piper Parabo. No, uh, it got a bad rap. We got in a fight with the distributor, which, you know, was probably a mistake. And they were going to, you know, show us, uh, you know, that uh, here's how this industry works. And you fuck with us. Your movie's going to be dead. Um, but Dan I have tremendous respect for Danny. And uh, no, that, that was a joy making that movie. Yeah. Now, how do you bounce back from something that... Uh you love making, you like the way it turns out, and then it doesn't have that success. How, what's the bounce back? Is it something instilled from your father where it's like, you just keep going. You just, you just keep going. Well, I think something else is at work. Um, I, th I think that certainly you just keep going. My father's, you know, sign off on everything was Avanti which is Italian, you know, move forward, Avante. Yeah. You know, Avante Popula, the people move forward. That, that was his mantra. Uh, so sure. But I think, I guess, I don't know when you, when you were coming of age, for me, that bohemian underground kind of world had a lot of power and it still does. Uh, it's harder now to think, you know, of a, you, you mentioned artists, you know, the idea of artists who aren't rich, who aren't famous, yeah. who aren't millionaires, who aren't celebrities. In other words, we've now come to equate, you know, artistic success and celebrity and money and fame and everything. But when, when I grew up, whether it was William Burroughs or, or Jack Kerouac or, or Henry Miller or J Charlie Parker or Billie Holiday, these were, in my mind, these were giants, but none of them you know, were rich. None of them were famous or celebrities. So my point is just that I think there's a part of me that has always been a little afraid of 
what you, I guess you would call big time success, like celebrity success, and knowing myself how I could become as big an asshole as so many others have become, uh, given all that. And that there's something about staying true uh, to kind of the underground ethos or, or, or just being real and being a, a person. So not that I wished for, I wished white boys had been a smash, obviously. Uh, but I think that protected me in a way uh, in that I was able to accept failure. I was able to accept a lack of, of commercial success as not meaning that, that, that you know, my vision was wrong. Uh, and I was comfortable, I was comfortable going into a club. Look, it's great to go into a club and the, the waters part. And Henri Kessler, who was the producer of Slam, he, he owned a club. He was a nightclub owner. Uh, and, you know, w when we were on that tour, it was amazing. We'd get out of the car and 100 people in front of clubs, whether it was New York, whether it was London, whether it was Paris. And you go in and then you go to the VIP room. And, and, and that's all great. And I loved it. But there's also something about being in a place where you're at a bar, you meet someone, you and I meet. And I'm a nobody. Yeah. And, and I'm, it's just us, like we're talking now. And it's what comes out of the moment, not, oh, you made that or you did that or, or you got a gig for me or, or maybe, you know, it's just a different way. And I, 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 I embraced the anonymity. I liked that. I liked being out there without having to carry, you know, I did this, I did that. No, no, I'm just hanging out tonight. I like this music. What about you? There's something about being, uh, for lack of a better term, a man of the people because it gives you this grounding and, and you're able to create stuff that will mean more to more people, obviously, than being this big grandiose studio head and then you end up jerking off into plants and going to prison and getting shifted <laughs> around because of COVID. Uh, I didn't even have to name a name and you laughed at that. How do you decide when a project is something you want to direct versus something you just want to be involved in, like as an EP? Well, now I'm, I, I'm looking more to EP in, only in that, you know, uh, uh, it allows me to do a variety of projects, uh, directing as a young man and woman's game. Uh, but, you know, those things that just personally kind of consume me, like, like let's take Freeway Crack in the System, a film I did, uh, you know, six, seven years ago. I was just consumed by trying to make sense of this whole idea that our intelligence community was somehow involved in allowing drugs to come into this country and both the heroin epidemic of the 70s and the crack epidemic of the 80s and 90s, you know, were blowback, which is the name of, of my company, were blowback for out of the Cold War and an intelligence community that was willing to work with the mob, was willing to work with death squads, was willing to work with, you know, some of the worst of the worst as long as they were anti-communists and that they killed some communists. And then those characters knew how to use that and leverage that in protection so they could get into drug running, gun running, etc. So I was consumed for years because 
I think a part of my mission has been the 60s, the generation I came up with, you know, has, has been blamed for every fuck up. And a lot of them we are re responsible for. Uh, but this idea that the drugs, it's the drug war that took us, uh, and drugs can be bad, and I lost some friends to drugs. But this drug war has been my crusade to see it end. Uh, it's the internal war that I've kind of put myself on the front line of, whether it's in the street with gangs, whether it's with gangsters, whether it's in prisons. Uh, and even when we did Prisoners of the War on Drugs, we had guys making meth in prison. Yeah. <laughs> you know, guy giving a chemistry course in prison, Denny, on how you make good crank. Yeah. Uh, and you can't stop it in the maximum security prison, you know, forget it. So I think when you have a passion like that, the idea that Rick Ross, Freeway Rick, was, you know, this character that the Nicaraguan, uh, this Nicaraguan dealer somehow connected with, Gary Webb wrote the whole book, Dark Alliance. That was a project I just felt, uh, personally, I had to be on that journey. I had to see for myself. I went to Nicaragua. Uh, you know, uh, I, I, I dealt with. Uh, and um, I, I came to the conclusion that not that it was some sophisticated plot hatched on the seventh floor of Langley, you know, CIA headquarters, because these guys don't have that together. But it was the blowback, the unintended consequence of getting in business with the killers and gangsters of the world who are willing to kill communists. Uh, and then they've got to kind of get out of jail card. And that's really part of the story of how these drugs became such a scourge. So that was something I personally wanted to be the tip of the spear. I mean, this you have a mission in your work, right? You have an agenda because you deal with criminal justice reform, education, prison. Is the attempt of the work equality or is it to just negate the horrible influences in the world? And if so, can movies do that? That is a good question. Uh, you know, uh, what movies can do um, is, is a good question. Although I think both of us would say, you know, there are movies that moved us. Uh, and that, that I that was watching The Notebook and my wife kissed me the other night. It was very exciting. I don't know if you've seen it. She <laughs> tends to love this Ryan Gosling guy. I, I put a wig on sometimes, but you were. <laughs> uh, so, no, look, I, I would say, you know, that. My mission is to certainly see the, the war on drugs and certainly to see uh, this criminalization uh, in, in, in this criminal justice system we have reformed, uh, to see our democracy saved, all of those, to see economic uh, equality. I mean, look where we're at, you know, in terms of, you know, the rich getting richer and everybody else getting fucked, all of that. But I think as a storyteller, it's to try to move people. I think when I was younger, it was trying to shock people and also trying to expose, you know, in other words, to rip back uh, the veil or, or the cover uh, and expose. And I think uh, in the last 10 years, maybe, it's since starting with Brick City, uh, I've, I've been looking more for people, well, well, okay, so what can you do? 
what, what can you do about it? You know, and where are people who are actually making a difference? You know, that's what attracted me to Cory Booker. It's attracted me, you know, to uh, Michael um, Tubbs out in Stockton. Uh, so I, I think in that sense, my, my sensibility has changed a little that I'm, I'm not as anxious as I was, you know, for 20 or 30 years to, oh, there's the, there's the front line. I better get right in there. It's happening in Portland. I need to be right there. Why am I not in Portland, you know, right. with, with these young people? Uh, now more to, okay, so what comes after that? And how do you build something that's better? It's not going to be perfect, but going back to my grandfather's, you know, epigram, you know, go do good. How do you do good? You know, and at one point, okay, shocking people, you know, getting them out of their status quo to think differently, exposing corruption, the secret government, which is where I won my first Emmy with Moyers. You know, that was Oliver Stone. I mean, Oliver North testifying. I sat right behind him. with demented fantasies of like, you know, what could I do to him? Uh, And little did I think that the guy, I remember going back and watching Nightline that night in a hotel in Washington, because I thought, okay, that's the end for the Reagan administration. And then this guy became a hero. Yeah. Uh, So, uh, yeah, I don't know uh, how films can impact people, uh, but I am moved when I hear that people are moved or inspired or, or, or moved to action or get involved in some way or learn. Even in going back to anti-Semitism and protocols, when I invited Shabazz, the leader of the new Black Panther Party, to the premiere at HBO, a lot of the Jewish community, again, was upset. What are you doing? You know, this guy's the biggest anti-Semite, you know, going. And uh, he came out of the film... I'm not going to say he was converted, but I will say that he he said something like, well, maybe some Jews did die in the World Trade Center, which he had been a total denier, you know. So uh, the dialogue, the creative dialogue, uh, the opening of people's minds, opening their hearts. uh, Yeah, sure. That's part of the mission. These things don't go away because we see this. This was years ago, but you'll still see them popping up. This anti-Semitism, which is odd to see from the black community as someone that's been immersed in it. I do a ton of black shows. You've worked in the black to see that come up is weird. Like the Nick Cannon thing that happened recently. And, And we're shocked by it because we feel like Jews and black people, although the suffering is not the same and the struggle is not the same, we feel like there's a camaraderie there. Um, So to me, it's like, how is that going to go away? That's an important thing. But the way that you align yourself with people and companies that are capable of change, your relationship with HBO uh, for years. So HBO was at the forefront of making hard hitting television. They, they basically cinematic quality television that shifted the landscape of TV. Uh, you were there for years. How was that? And how did you have carte blanche? Are you like green light this? I want to make this. No, no, no. I mean, Sheila Nevins, I'm sure you've heard the stories. You know, she was a, uh, uh, she is uh, a mythic uh, character, probably uh, one of the great influences in my life, and uh, but but not an easy woman to get along with. And you would go in and pitch one thing, and you'd walk out, and you'd be doing another film. Uh, although, uh, I mean, on Schmata, it, it's funny because um, just the word, 
uh, I remember sitting with her and we're talking about what are we going to do? And she's like, oh, look at this blouse I'm wearing. Oh, I think it was made in, you know, Vietnam. And look at my slacks. I think it's made. And she's, you know, like, maybe we should do something. She's just kind of free associating. Yeah. And I just looked at her and I was like, Sheila, I mean, come on, this, this is an old story. I mean, you know what? You just woke up to that manufacturing is, is you know, all over. You want to do something on the schmata business? And she looks at me and she goes, Schmata, that's a great title. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, yeah, but what's the film? And she was like, you'll figure it out. Uh, so uh, I had a great relationship, but uh, I'm sure I walked into that meeting with another project that I was pitching. Yeah. And I walked out and I thought, I'm doing a film on Schmata. Okay, where, where do I start? Uh, but the black Jewish thing that you brought up, the Nick Cannon thing that came to my attention, I mean, you know, it is fascinating, and uh, I, uh, you know, I'm in business with, uh, uh, you know, on, on the Stockton thing, I've, I've joined forces with a company that's black-owned by Kevin Garnett, uh, the, you know, future Hall of Famer, uh, Bo Bennett, uh, Mike Marenga, uh, and, you know, it, like you said, there's such a simpatico, but still all the craziness you know, floats around and new generations come. And look, you know, it's easy to look for a conspiracy theory or the success of a lot of Jews in our business, the entertainment business. I mean, look, when I, when I went to Hollywood to do protocols, none of the major Jewish directors or creatives would talk to me. They didn't want to engage in that dialogue. In fact, I ended up and this is when Mel Gibson came out with, you know, the, his film on, on Christ. Uh, I ended up through a friend of Larry David's wife at Larry David's house because I was trying to get him on. You know, I yeah. just thought, oh, Larry, come on, you need to speak to what's happening. And um, he declined. And, but I ended up at his house for, there was a small fundraiser for Barbara Boxer, the senator, and, and, and President Clinton came. So it was Larry David's house, Pacific uh, Palisades, and uh, everybody's gathering around Clinton and Barbara Box. There are only 20 people there. And I'm in the kitchen, you know, kind of looking over the counter. And right next to me is Larry David. And he turns to me and he goes, who the hell are you? And so I said, you know, I'm Mark Levin. And I called you a few weeks ago and, you know, and tried to get you. And how the hell did you get in my house? You know, yeah. like I got brought by. So... All of a sudden, I felt like I was on his show. He looks at me and he goes, because I, I came with a woman who had gone to Sheep's Head High, which yeah. is where Larry went. And he goes, Sheep's Head, he goes, none of the girls there would put out. I had to go over to Midwood. And that was where I could get some action. He just went into the rap. I mean, I felt yeah. that was in his show. I um, picture you walking away and just hearing boom, 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 boom. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, you you are aligning yourself with people that are capable of change. Uh, I promise your latest project with LeBron James, who who is uh, really tantamount to as political as a sports figure as you could be right now, I think, because so many people have tried to shut him up and it, they haven't been successful. How did this come about and where's it going? Well, you're right about LeBron and, uh, you know, as a basketball fan, and, and um, I have to admit, I've followed LeBron's career since he was at St. V's High School. 
but I always rooted against him because he was never on the Knicks. He was always on the wrong team. So that right. was a problem. Um, but seeing what he did in uh, Akron with this I Promise School, I mean, everybody told him, start, you want to start a school, start a private academy. You can control it. No, I went to a public school. He said, okay, then do a charter school. No, I went to a regular public school. So it took two years of negotiation. They worked out a deal with the Akron public school system, all the wraparound services that they provide by LeBron's foundation. And that means from housing to home for homeless people, medical services, legal aid, uh, GED courses for parents. I mean, uh, doctors and dentists, eyeglasses. Um, And on top of all that, and this is why I've, I've come to really respect LeBron, he said, it should be for kids like me, the most at-risk kids. So in second grade in, in, in Ohio, they give all the kids a test. And the kids in the bottom 25% are pretty much labeled the at-risk kids who probably won't graduate. He had a lottery with those kids. Uh, so um, I think his, his team, uh, you know, Spring Hill Productions uh, and his foundation, they had seen a film I had done, Class Divide. Uh, for HBO, which was actually, I thought, like a neighborhood film. It was about, you know, 26th Street, a corner on 26th Street, uh, you know, where I li- near where I live, where on one side of the street, you have the Avenues World School, the newest elite private school in Manhattan for the wealthiest of the wealthiest kids. And on the opposite side of the street, you have uh, public housing, um, the Chelsea uh, public housing. Um, and we took kids from two sides of the street, and basically told the story of income inequality, gentrification, but through the eyes of kids and how they saw each other and how they saw that part of Manhattan, Chelsea, which at that time with the High Line and the opening of, um, you know, all the new buildings, uh, it was the fastest gentrifying area in Manhattan. Uh, so they saw that and it was told to the kids' ideas, eyes. And I said, you know, to them, you know, if I did something like that with you, the whole idea would be have the kids tell the story. So they bought that. Uh, and we spent a year uh, in the first year of the I Promise School. And I have to say, that was an eye-opener. Because like many people, I guess, I figured the bottom 25%, you know, these kids, maybe they're going to be slow. They're going to have learning disabilities, you know, whatever. These were some of the most creative uh, intelligence kids. But they had all the behavior and, and, and social and family issues that they brought to school every day. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, that series, which is on Quibi now and, and premiered this spring, we're uh, hoping to uh, go back and do a, a next season uh, and follow now the reopening that all public uh, education is struggling with. Uh, but it's uh, a tremendous, tremendous model for again, going back to the people, because I went to public school, the waste, this, you've heard the term, the school to prison pipeline, you know, and we're talking about, you know, gangs and and all of that. It starts, whether you can get these kids, they're they're at third grade, they've already know that some people have written them off as failures, as, as, you know, dropouts, as basically throwaways. And if you get them and you turn on their creativity and get them engaged, it's a whole new world. And it just drives me crazy that right now 
this government of ours can't even get it together to make a commitment to public education, you know. My wife and I watched Banging a Little Rock together, and uh, she, you're looking for what the cause is and what the effect is, and she consistently said it's education. The the problem, what's missing is the educate the education system is to blame for a lot of this. And I go, well, what about parenting? Parenting needs to be a verb, but it's the, it's the people that are, the parents trust their kids with and the education system has a duty to make these kids better than they are. And Aaron, I think what you just said, parenting, education, I think what I saw in this model is they go together. In other words, you have to educate the whole family. You bring the family into the school ecology. That is part of the challenge, uh, is getting the parents so that they are interested in the work that the kids are doing, that they're able to follow. Uh, but your wife is, is, is right. And yeah. uh, and that's what I promise is all about is starting with kids in third and fourth grade, uh, kids that probably were not going to have a shot and giving them a shot. And I just remember, you know, because here we are in media and these kids are all media literate. They've all got their cell phones. You know, they're all on YouTube. You know, they're all playing Fortnite. I mean, they're, that that is their world. They're literate in that world. They may not be able to read or understand algebra, but they are literate in the media world. So they all wanted to work with us, which is great. And there was one kid, Noah, who was one of the toughest behavior issues in the school, had actually been sent to a reform school where he was locked down. And he was working on our crew one day and uh, we were going to go from the playground back into the school. And I just said, Noah, would you pick up the tripod, carry it and, you know, take us back indoors. He went, took the tripod, threw it over his shoulder, leads us in. And as we're going in, one of the teachers grabs me and she goes, what did you give him? And I was like, what do you mean? And she goes, I've never seen him ever listen to an adult in the whole year I've been here. That's the first time I ever saw him do what an adult asked. What did you give him? And I said, I didn't give him anything except he's part of our team. Yeah. He's with us. He's in our crew. He's in our gang. Yeah. It's, it's an emotional thing to see. And I don't mean this as an insult, obviously, how old and wise you are, but, <laughs> st- but still in touch with the youth. And still there's this, you know, uh, the, I think it's reminiscent and it, I, I hope it's a generational thing that your father passed and your family passed to you because clearly you're passing it on to your son because he's moving into the same type of realm as you, right? Yeah. Uh, as a filmmaker. Yep. So it, it's a touching thing to see this Jewish through line of your family that has this ebb and flow to it. And there's this personal success, but also this need to share and to go do good. So it's amazing how it stayed with you. Um, I have a quick question from Josh. Um, As a Knicks fan, what are your thoughts on the owner, James Dolan. Oh, God. I believe that eminent domain should be uh, instituted and that the city of New York should take the Knicks from the Dolan family uh, as a public service. Uh, I believe he has cursed Madison Square Garden. 
if it makes you feel any better, there is a major heroin problem right outside of MSG right now. I walked by it today. Uh, it's it's horrible. I, I hope that you don't have to come back too soon. Um, have you seen stuff like this? You've seen people shooting up. You've seen people doing drugs. Oh, yeah. Out of everybody that you've worked with one-on-one, who is the scariest one-on-one encounter that you've had, whether it be a subject or whether it be in your personal life. Well, Sammy Gravano obviously is 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 a scary individual. Uh, bull. You know, yeah, he murdered nineteen people, including his brother-in-law. Uh, but I would say there, there's a project that I never finished that Richard Stratman and I you started. Uh, it's called uh, OG Joe Stasi Original Gangster, uh, about a guy that's in no mob history book, but Richard. Um, who was a partner with me on a lot of these projects, uh, was a a big-time marijuana and hashish dealer and got busted and uh, got a 25-year sentence and uh, in prison got to know quite a a few people. And one of them, who was literally in the cell next to him, was this guy, Joe Stasi. And Richard could never figure it out because the guy was already in his 80s in maximum security prison, but he had such respect from all the wise guys, from everybody. And so who is this guy? So amazingly, Richard helped him get out. You know, Richard became a jailhouse lawyer and we, and Richard got out and we reconnected with this guy when he was in his 90s. Uh, And this guy claims he was the master mind behind the Dutch Schultz hit in 1936, one of the most famous mob hits. He was Longies Wilman's right-hand guy, the the, the guy that ran New Jersey. He was very close to um, uh, Bugsy Siegel and Meyer Lansky. Uh, And he gave me a huge new perspective on the whole Jewish mob connection. Uh, He was Italian-American, you know, born on Lower East Side. But he was just so disdainful of the the mob bosses uh, that that he worked under and uh, basically said if it wasn't for the Jews, there would have been no mafia. There would have been no business. But he ended up running um, Meyer Lansky's operation and and Santo Traficante's operation in Cuba at the San Sosi. And he was the guy that every Friday they would take all the mob money at his house. Anyway, he's the scariest because in his 90s, Richard wrote an article for GQ about us making this film, which, as I say, never got finished. Um, and when it came out, Joe felt that Richard had betrayed him and made him look like, and he didn't, but it was because of the headline and because they had a picture of a bird, you know, like he was singing. And this is a guy that was so low profile, as I said, he's in no mob history, you know. Uh, and so we went down there and he turned on Richard and threatened to kill Richard. And that just, as seeing a 90 year old guy, but with such rage, like, you know, all my life, I never broke, you know, all these mob bosses are scumbags, the whole mob, but still, I never talked. And you made it look like I was a rat. And I'll never, and, and so just to see the rage in a 90 year old guy, and this guy obviously had many murders when he, earlier when he was known as Hoboken Joe uh, and, and Scorsese's Boardwalk Empire, you know, that was the era he came up in. That was the scariest, I think, he was the scariest guy I think I've ever seen. Amazing. Um, what I love about your story 
and, and the story of your family is it's multi-generational. I never had that. My dad was a lawyer. I went into comedy. He had aspects of comedy in his life, but I've never had that. Your dad did this. You did this. Your son is doing this. You have this family legacy that is becoming what the American dream was intended to be. And that's not a responsibility that you can take lightly. Um, what do you think about the impact of your family? And is it bigger than you? Did you ever picture this, that the Levin family was going to commandeer documentary filmmaking? <laughs> well, I wouldn't go that far, but my son is well on his way. He's, he's doing the uh, KG big ticket uh, documentary on Kevin Garnett uh, with his partner, Eric. Uh, and, uh, they're also putting a big project together on hot 97. So no, he's, he's out there on his own. Uh, it's a great thing to be able to work with my father. Many people, I remember Bill Moyers saying to me, you know, Mark, you and Al have such a unique relationship. You know, I'm, I'm envious, you know, Bill had, uh, children and, uh, just never had that kind of working relationship. Uh, and, uh, I now have the, the, the privilege to work with my son as I worked with my father. And I guess, you know, in a way, I mean, it's traditional, you know, back to the shtetl. I mean, in other words, yeah. like, Hey, you're a, you're a shoemaker or you're a, you know, a butcher and your father did that. And now you're going to do that. And your son's going to do that. And, you know, uh, although in my family, it's, it's funny because it was my daughter, you know, Sarah and Daniel are twins. And my daughter was the one that appeared to be following my footsteps earlier. She, she tested into Stuyvesant. She ended up going to Wesleyan, which is where I went, which is where my father went. And my son struggled more in school, uh, and, uh, was much more visual, was a graffiti artist, was an artist, much more like my wife and into the arts and somewhere in their early twenties. And I still don't quite understand it there was a switch that happened and my daughter now, uh, you know, is in the same field that my wife was in art restoration, art conservation. She works at the Met. And my son obviously is a director, a cinematographer, a producer. Uh, I don't know where, how that switch happened. Uh, and what you say about the family, I mean, I, I, that that's, uh, you know, humbling in, in, in a certain way, but I, I think, there is a truth. I, there is a strength and, and I've tried to share my family uh, and my father did my, you know, and open it up. Uh, we have a Hanukkah party where, you know, everybody comes, you don't have to be Jewish, you know, everybody it's, it's like a tribe. And what Patrick said, uh, it, it's funny. I certainly <laughs> thinking back to Hebrew school and check at you know, shut up, you know, always making trouble. Mm -hmm. uh, but, that um, in this community, you know, people have looked to me as a, a as a Rebbe. Uh, and that cracks me up, you know, because for most of my life, I thought of myself as kind of being scandalous and outrageous, a little like you, uh, and never thought I would land in a place where somebody would look to me as 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 Patrick said earlier. Uh, but now, I, you know, I'm a little more at peace with it. I mean, I haven't given up. 
you know, uh, pretending to still be 16. I mean, I'm out here because I can play tennis. I can hit with the tennis pros and take on younger kids. I can go windsurfing. I can pretend I'm still a fucking teenage lunatic. I love it. Uh, You have taken a very Jewish tradition, which is to keep the family business in the family. You've succeeded at it. You've been provocative. You've pushed buttons, you've educated, and you've uh, instilled change. And I don't think, and you survived a drive-by shooting. (laughs) It does not get more badass Jew than that. Mark, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. And I can't wait to come to your party and get a free copy of White Boys. And Aaron, thank you. All the best, guys.